This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. As a happily married 55-year-old professional woman, Susan Keller had it all, or thought she did, until the day of her shocking diagnosis with stage 4 mental cell lymphoma, a rare and aggressive disease. Within minutes of being admitted to the hospital, her beautifully ordinary life disappeared. How would cancer affect her marriage? Facing a possible death sentence, Susan experienced visions so lucid and beautiful that she imagined she was looking into the foyer of death or a magnificent afterlife. Her mind and body melded into all that surrounded her. Bliss replaced fear. Cancer and spirituality were one. But during the darkest moments, Susan questioned the nature of morality. Does death have the same shape, sound, and feeling for everyone? Did the father she yearned for think of her the moment he died? What would she think of? Would there be regret, celebration, or nothingness? After months of grueling inpatient chemo, she faced another seemingly impossible hurdle. To survive, she needed a bone marrow transplant. But Johnny, her brilliant off-the-grid brother, was the only possible donor, but he had vanished decades earlier. Blood Brother is a family saga of curing an incurable cancer and of the enigmatic events that led to finding a man who never wanted to be found. It also explores why he disappeared and delves into what it means to forgive the parents who abused and abandoned them. Susan survived twice, once a violent childhood and secondly, a devastating cancer. Blood Brother is a story of life after a bone marrow transplant. It's a moving tale of rebuilding a family, recognizing the unexpectedly stunning gifts of cancer and of how to embrace a profoundly generous second chance at life. Valeria Tellez interviews Susan Keller, the author of Blood Brother, a memoir. Susan Keller enjoyed a 30-year career as an award-winning medical writer. Her poetry won prizes in regional and national contests. She has a degree in public health and immunology from UC Berkeley. This background in science as well as poetry makes the voice in her first book, Blood Brother, a memoir, both lyric as well as credible. A frequently fatal lymphoma inspired Susan to write Blood Brother, a memoir. Articles about her story of hope and survival have been published in Psychology Today, Conquer, The Patient Voice, two guidepost magazines, Patient Power, and several newspapers. She is a monthly blog contributor to Psychology Today and Cure magazine. Susan is a presenter at Dominican University and at Stanford Cancer Center. All links available upon request. She is currently working on a novel entitled Flask. Susan lives in the Bay Area with her husband, Daniel. Meet Susan at susankeller.com. Here's the interview with Susan Keller.
your own words, who am I speaking with today? <laughs> Hello, and thanks so much for inviting me on your podcast. My name is Susan Keller, and I'm an author of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. My book, Blood Brother, a Memoir, is the story of curing a rare and aggressive lymphoma by getting a stem cell transplant. The problem? There was only one person in the world who could save my life by giving me those stem cells, and that was my brother Johnny, who'd vanished 30 years before I got sick. My only hope of survival was to find a man no one had seen or heard from in three decades. Blood Brother, a memoir, relates the enigmatic events that led to finding Johnny. It tells my story of hope against all the odds and my astonishing recovery physically as well as my growth spiritually. I admit that the book contains a fair bit of complaining about the medical establishment and some of the unnecessary suffering cancer patients must endure but there are also laughs along the way, often at my own expense. Some of my friends said they would never do what I did. Would I do it all again? Go through months of punishing inpatient chemo? Endure a septicemia, a blood poisoning, that almost did me in? And undergo the chemical removal of my immune system? Absolutely, I'd do it again, in a minute. Besides those treatment big guns, I delve into the quirks of having cancer. Being bald, having plastic tubes sprouting from my chest where meds could be administered, and being forced to wear a hideous pink plastic face covering to keep me safe from viruses and bacteria. I was a female Darth Vader. But beyond the oddities, Blood Brother, a memoir, is a tale of forgiveness rebuilding family, and how to live fully when life hands you a profoundly generous second chance. What is the purpose of the human experience? I think our purpose is to deal with the hand we are given. Everyone has their assets and liabilities. What we make of them is our purpose. I'll illustrate this with the story that Johnny and I share. It goes back to our childhood. Johnny was abused and abandoned by our deeply flawed parents who suffered from depression, alcoholism, drug dependence, and rage. They made him believe that he was a loser, wouldn't amount to anything, and could never measure up to the others in our family. Being seven years older than Johnny, I was kind of his second mom and fought with our mother for years about the horrible way she treated him. But he believed those cruel indictments and after high school disappeared into a drug underground where he grew and sold pot, hashish, mushrooms, and hallucinogens and and maybe other substances I don't know about. Due to a deep discomfort with his black sheep position in our family and his need to keep a low profile for legal reasons, He went off the grid. When I got sick and we began looking for him, no one even knew if he was alive. 
we went down many dead ends. Finding him was astonishing and beyond any reasonable explanation. It also led me down the path of finding my purpose in the human experiment. Johnny helped me do this by showing me his own astonishing spiritual growth. What is to be spiritual? And what is spirituality? After Johnny and I were reunited, he told me more stories of abuse that I hadn't witnessed as I was in school. These stories broke my heart. To illustrate, I'll read an excerpt from Blood Brother where he reveals his amazing transformation to a place of acceptance and peace. The feeling of not measuring up, Johnny says, the shame of being a poor performer did remain as shadow material throughout my life. The, this intense feeling of inadequacy created the desire to keep my distance from all family members. He shifts in his seat and continues, I've made peace with all that past turmoil. Nothing valuable or truly creative comes from self-pity. I engaged in that long enough to see its destructiveness, but it did take me years to set down the animosities I had toward Mom. One cannot expect love or compassion from someone living in hell. The generosity of his comments stuns me. I cannot imagine how he is this strong, this kind, this serene. At that moment, I hate my mother and father, even if Johnny does not. So, after hearing his stories, I simmered in my own negativity. As a kid, I too was abused and abandoned, and had certainly not reached the transcendental frame of mind that Johnny had. But looking below the surface into why I felt hatred towards my parents, I discovered that what I was really feeling was deep sorrow. For me, the wounds of abuse and abandonment still had not healed. Our dad left when I was 12, married his second wife, and adopted her six-year-old daughter. I was entering a painful adolescence, and there he was, seemingly overnight, the father of an adorable little girl. I'd been rejected, replaced, and kicked to the side. For years, I would feel pain with something as mundane as seeing a dad and his daughter in a supermarket. I felt so cheated that I had not had that easy, everyday relationship with my dad. I couldn't give up the yearning for another childhood and wondered, why couldn't I have that closeness with my own father? But after finding Johnny and hearing his amazing disavowal of anger, rage, and blame, I started to imagine how it would feel to adopt that compassion, to take that step towards a spiritual response to the pain we suffered as kids. I'm still working on it, but he set me on the path towards forgiveness. Sometimes I wonder, this is a little crazy, but sometimes I wonder if I met my parents in heaven, what would I say to them? What would they say to me? I can't let these questions go. They kind of obsess me. What is the meaning of freedom to you? What is to be free? 
That's a great question. At this time in my life, being free is letting go of blame. Johnny showed me how strong and unencumbered he was by letting go of his animosities. His question, how can you expect love or compassion from someone living in hell, shook me deeply, and I began to reconsider our parents' realities. Maybe their lives were much more difficult, even agonizing, than I had known. As a child, all you feel is the pain inflicted upon you. Children don't have the ability or wisdom to see into the misery their parents may be living every day. After talking to Johnny, I begin to feel a softening towards my mom and dad. I rummaged around in a box of old photographs and found a black and white photo of them from many decades ago. I put it on a bulletin board in my office. When I walk past it now, I say, Hi folks, how are you doing? That simple hello makes me feel a warmth towards them that had been absent most of my life. So for me, one big part of freedom is forgiveness. My mother and I never had an easy relationship. As I mentioned, we fought about her treatment of Johnny for a long time. It seemed that our only recourse was to simply stay away from the topic of my brother. However, near the end of her life, my mother said a couple of things that startled me. One time, we were sitting at lunch, and she looked at me and said, If you weren't my own daughter, you'd intimidate me. Honestly, I was shocked. This from a mother who had never given me a compliment was a very big deal. On another occasion, after my illness, she said, I'm sorry I wasn't around to help you more. With these two comments, I began to feel that maybe, nearing the end of her life, she wanted to make amends. Had she not passed away, this might have been an opening to building a healthy and loving relationship between my mother and me. I don't know. But freedom from past negative parents, patterns, sorry, freedom from past negative patterns is surely a gift. What is healing to you? Healing is many things. On my first visit to the Stanford Advanced Cancer Center, Cancer Center, that was where I was going to get my my, uh, stem cell transplant, I experienced a profound example of healing. I was nervous, afraid, and felt like I was in an alternate universe. Before entering the massive building, a man slowed and hobbled toward me, gazing at the telltale blue wool cap pulled over my bald head. He smiled, lopsided, and slurred, Don't worry, you'll be fine. About my age, he was skeletal, and the left side of his lower face and jaw were missing. I thanked him and tried to make my trembling lips smile. I forced myself not to burst into sobs and thought what a radiant hero he was, attempting to make me feel better. All I'd lost so far was my hair. I'll never forget that man 
and the healing message he gave me. Certainly healing was the physical end of illness and regaining strength and vitality. But healing also happened when Johnny and I began to rebuild family. We are now in touch. I can't pretend that after all the years we were apart, that being in each other's lives is natural or easy. We are very different people, and our journeys have no resemblance to each other. We love one another, but we don't know each other well. I worry about him. I want to protect him, as I did, you know, for so long when we were kids. And I want to change him, which, of course, is a terrible idea. He lives life on the edge, and I'm afraid that an illness, a fire, or even a small loss of income would put him dangerously close to homeless. Of course, I would help and never let that happen. But I believe that our parents' criticism and abandonment have, at some level, convinced him that he's not deserving. I've urged him to think about getting a job that doesn't carry the risk of jail, but I just end up sounding judgmental and distant. You know, an older sister trying to tell him what to do. He doesn't want to hear it. Who could blame him? I even sound sanctimonious to myself. Johnny is a brilliant man. He is a self-taught mycologist, that's a mushroom guy, biologist, and a conchologist, which is an expert on shells. I can hardly imagine what he would have achieved had he been encouraged and supported as a boy and a young man. At this time, what is the purpose of your life? At the deepest level, the purpose of my life is the same as anyone else's, to love, to learn, and to serve. And, as a writer, the purpose in my life was brought into crystal clear focus after I survived cancer. I had to write my story. Many people who are fa facing dire illness need a story of hope and survival against all the odds. I believe my memoir provides that, with a few laughs along the way. Writing and getting my book published opened up a whole new journey in my life. At some point, my purpose may be to support Johnny financially more than I do now. And lastly, as I age, the purpose of my life is to engender gratitude for all that I have and for the beauty around me. Gratitude for family and friends and the health to which I've been restored, are feelings that I remind myself of every day. What is your understanding and idea of love? To me, love is like air. It's always around us. We can't see it, but we must have it. Love is so small and yet so huge. It's present in every word we speak, helping hand we offer, or laughter we share. It is so omnipotent that we can practice it every moment of the day. I think practice is a good word here, because some love, you know, comes easy. 
we don't need to think about expressing it. There are times when we need to practice to reach for our higher selves so we can be a more loving person. I'd love to share an experience that I will never forget. At the end of seven months of intensive chemotherapy, radiation, and chemical erasure of my immune system, I received the stem cell transplant from Johnny. I'll read a section of my book that describes the love and wonder of that morning. It's 9 a.m., March 24th, 2006, my new birthday. It rained last night, and the sky is translucent blue. My husband Dan, Johnny, and I arrive at the Stanford Advanced Cancer Center. Dan supports me as I still need help walking more than a couple of minutes. You're trembling, he says. I'm excited. We don't wait long before Andrea, a transplant nurse, escorts us through a set of heavy glass doors. We've been warned that one pass removing Johnny's stem cells might not be enough and aphoresis might need to be repeated. For his sake, I really hope not. We walk down a corridor with gleaming beige flooring and white walls toward a private room. Before entering, I see them from the hallway and cover my mouth with my hand. The plastic bag of exquisite coral stem cells hangs on a metal tree next to the bedside. Oh, escapes my lips. Lips. All four of us stand outside the room and look in. That's a miracle, I say. Made to order for you, sis. I'm afraid to go in. Dan leads me gently inside. Your hands are freezing. Andrea follows us into the room. Gesturing toward the bed, she said, please get comfortable. Any pain? No. You look wonderful, she says. Would you like some music? I'd love music. She pulls a small CD player out of her bag, and Indian flute music fills the room. Dr. Craig, my transplant specialist, joins us. Plump and in his late 30s, he has an impish face and is always smiling. He brims with optimism, and the confidence he instills in me is huge. I love this man. Being around him makes me believe that everything will be fine. Dr. Craig hooks up the stem cells that begin to flow downward into my Hickman catheter. Dan takes photographs. My hair, no more than half an inch in length, covers my head in a soft mat. Johnny, in his tie-dye t-shirt, leans in towards me. Our smiles are irrepressible as the life-giving stem cells find their way to a new home. Feeling okay? Dr. Greg Craig asks, great. Johnny gives me a thumbs up. Looking at the luminous orange bag, Dr. Craig says, I believe this transplant will be your ticket to a cure and many more years of good health. The other C word, cure. You really think so? No one has said cure to me before. Yes, he nods. I really think so. 
Tears run down my face. Dr. Craig leans over and hugs me. Dan tears up and hugs me. Both of us are laughing and crying. This is the best news I've heard in the last six months. No, this is the best news I've ever heard. Thank you. Thank you so much. My voice is squeaky with emotion. Thank your brother here. Yes, Johnny, you are literally a lifesaver. We hug, and his long hair covers both of us, as if we are in a secret society where only those who share blood and bone are admitted. His stem cells, like microscopic homing pigeons on a life-and-death mission, are on their way into my bone marrow to set up house. If all goes well, these cells will destroy any cancer still hiding in my body and give me a new, non-malignant immune system and the promise of years of health to come. The feeling in that small white room that morning was like being in a cathedral where I was the recipient of a glorious sacrament. I can hardly describe the gratitude, wonder, and love of that day, but I will never forget it. What is inner peace to you? I experienced the most profound episodes of inner peace while I was desperately sick. I think of these experiences as another ineffable gift of serious illness. I'll read a passage from my book where I describe the most divine moments of inner peace. The passage starts with my devastating and totally unexpected diagnosis. In 2005, I went to my doctor for what I, and Google, thought was a minor kidney infection, a bottle of antibiotics, and I'd be fine. Twenty minutes after entering her office, she diagnosed me with stage four lymphoma. Immediately hospitalized, a biopsy revealed that over 90% of my bone marrow was a cancerous mush. I had mantle cell lymphoma, a rare and aggressive form of the disease. Survival was unlikely. My reality became one of denial and terror. I received continual emergency blood transfusions, and after days as an inpatient, I was finally discharged. But back home, my nightmare ended. Sunlight flooded in through our four French doors, facing the northern California hills, covered in oaks, madrones, and bay laurels. My bare feet soaked up warmth from the wooden floor. The swaying treetops were jade green, the trunks emerald. Above the ridgeline, a marine blue sky was streaked with clouds, the color of pewter. Swallows lifted on the thermals, Opening the doors, I smelled foliage, dirt, and the salt ocean just a block away, the scent of living things. Everything was alive, but alive in the way that I was in that moment, madly conscious. Blood buzzed in my veins. I was not sick, but ruthlessly okay. I took another deep breath and smiled. What had changed? 
Did grace, biology, or an alignment of the planets produce this momentary perfection, loss of ego, merging of the self with all that lives outside the body? Was this vision a suit of armor against the terror of cancer or a glimpse into a magnificent afterlife? It didn't matter. I was safe. I closed my eyes and life pulsed through my body. A week later, I described my visions to my daughter. I haven't told this to anyone, but sometimes things look different, I said. What do you mean? Colors. Green is so green. The sky quivers. Everything is intense and alive. Sounds cool. A little hallucinogenic, she said. I don't see it all the time. Is it good or not? Very good. It makes me feel connected, like I'm in the sky, the trees, the hills. There's no separation between me and the whole world. It's blissful. I don't know. It feels like I'm everything. I sound so dumb. You don't sound dumb. I think it's your vision for healing. Hold on to it. I've read passages by writers who were clinically dead for some minutes or had a near-death experience, and the similarities of their experiences to my vision astounded me. Loss of ego, merging of the self with what exists outside the body, grace, and overwhelming peace. That experience was 16 years ago, and I can still recall the serenity and awe, sights and sounds of those visions. They remain with me as an enduring gift. If my cancer comes back, I will be less afraid, more accepting, because I understand wonder can replace fear. Tranquility can ease pain. Death might be an experience of glory. There is comfort in the possibility that what we will all face someday may be beautiful. How do you define success? What is to be successful to you? Success is waking every day and being so involved that you can't wait to dig into the project in front of you, which for me is immersion in ideas and expression and sharing words. If I've touched someone else with the words I've written, that is success to me. So, why did you choose to do what you do? It wasn't a choice. Writing chose me. How did you become a writer? I've been writing for decades, really since I was in high school. And when I get something down on paper that I feel is true that has a glimmer of the universe in it, I get an excited feeling in the pit of my stomach. There is no other sensation like it. I can't say that writing is ever easy, but I find it irresistible, and I want to share and share. Since publication of my memoir, I've written and published articles, blogs, and personal essays. I can honestly say that I have never been happier with my working life than I am today. This is another big reason to be grateful. Maybe it's self-empowerment. Maybe it's grace. I don't know, but it's wonderful. 
what was the inspiration, intention, and purpose of writing your book? I wrote Blood Brother, a memoir, over the course of about 10 years. Not full-time, but off and on. I always felt the need to tell my story, even though when I began writing, I wasn't sure of where it would go. But I loved the process and couldn't stop. Some people have told me that I survived my illness because I was destined to write Blood Brother. I don't know if that's true or not. I do know that I learned so much from the experience of being desperately sick and then given a second chance. I'll now share some of those lessons about living more compassionately after a desperate illness. Being a survivor has made me realize that there isn't time to beat myself up for real or perceived deficiencies or wallow around in negativity. The ticking of the clock has a new trace of urgency, but it is a fine thing. It is not worrisome. Instead, it feels as if two hands are behind me, gently pushing me in a helpful, encouraging manner, enabling me to maintain a gratifying forward momentum. During the biopsies, the chemo, the sepsis, Enduring, excuse me, the biopsies, the chemo, the sepsis, and the transplant created a stronger, less neurotic me. Grace was born amidst the suffering brought on by mantle cell lymphoma, and that grace has quieted the howl of my childhood terrors of chaos, abandonment, and feeling unloved. I can now reject the rant of inadequacy that bellowed inside me since childhood. I no longer run from a damning voice. I move now because I have strong legs and lungs and a lot of ground to cover. Talk to me for a moment about the services you offer. I have a few services that I offer. One is speaking to both medical and post-grad audiences. For example... I gave a presentation to the MFA students at Dominican University on writing and healing. It was a lovely experience to both prepare and deliver that talk. Many of the students in the program are memoirists, some are healthcare providers, and most have had traumatic experiences in life, both physical, psychological, and spiritual. I loved that I could deliver a message of hope, renewal, and even rebirth. I could illustrate to them that the writing process will result in far more than just sales on Amazon. I delivered another presentation to the Stanford Medical Center titled, Why My Oncologist Still Calls Me Her Miracle Patient. Even though the audience was Stanford physicians, some of the brainiest people around, I loved the prep and delivery of that one as well. Among other areas, the talk delved into what it means to be a cancer survivor. I think I was really able to provide the doctors in the audience an honest and and intimate look into being a cancer patient, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Since my presentation they have asked me to come back and help them develop curriculum 
for their survivorship program at Stanford. I'm also a regular blogger for both Psychology Today and Cure Magazine, and I've been invited to present to a number of book groups. I also love, you know, participating in podcasts like this one. Where can we find more information about you, your work, products, services, and future projects? My website is www.susankeller.com. It contains excerpts from my book, my blogs, links to my presentation, and an email sign-up list on the media and contact button where you can join me. I only email about eight times a year, but I do send out my blogs and announcements of presentations I'm giving. We are almost at the end of our conversation, and I have two final questions for you. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything in a different way? Yes, I would spend more time with my husband and our daughter and her family. They live in L.A. and we are in the Bay Area. It's not that far, but as I get older, it feels farther away. As we age, travel doesn't get easier, and my two grandsons are growing up quickly. It pains me that my husband and I are missing so many months and even years with the pandemic of participating in our kids' lives. I am hopeful, however, that the worst of COVID is behind us and we can make many more trips to L.A. And I can even start winning a couple of Monopoly games that my seven-year-old grandson beats me at nearly every time. What are three things about life you know for sure as of this moment? I absolutely love this question. Thank you for asking. I know for sure that happiness is giving to others. A couple of weeks ago, my husband and I were in a grocery store line. An elderly woman at the front of the checkout line kept scrounging in her purse and flagging people ahead of her. When it was our turn, the lady still had not found what she was looking for. My husband whispered to me, Do you think she's looking for money? I said, I don't know. Then he asked, should we offer to pay for her groceries? Yes, I replied. I walked up to her and asked, do you need some help paying for the food? She looked up at me and said, oh, darling, no, you are too kind. Thank you so much. You sure? I asked again. She smiled and said, God bless you. My husband and I paid for our groceries and left. As we walked out of the store, I felt so light and grateful, grateful that I am at a point in my life where I can offer a stranger money to buy food and really grateful that I am married to such a generous and compassionate man. Here's another example. I know for sure that we are meant to serve others. Some of the happiest experiences in my life were when my husband and I volunteered to teach English to, uh, to foreign speakers. We did this for six years and always left our classes feeling elated. Serving 
is receiving on steroids. I know for sure that even though I am not moneyed, I will help Johnny if and when he needs it. I know for sure that forgiveness is a gift. Cancer taught me that. I end my book with the following short chapter about opening my heart. Forgiveness is a lifetime, not a moment. I walk down my clean, well-landscaped street and reach the north end of the San Francisco Bay. It is summer. Eleven years ago today, my mother died, and more than 14 years ago, I received my stem cell transplant. Today the bay is a great bowl of green, silver, and blue water. Small, ceaseless waves from the broad horizon break up and down the beach. The massive freighters heading west out the Golden Gate unleash their deep blast waves that rumble through me. I breathe in the salt air that streams off the bay and blows the hair away from my face. Sitting on a flat stone, I am struck by the irony. My mother had her thunderous morality and strict Catholicism. My father had his tough guy, madman persona. Yet I'm the strong one. And even with my history of lymphoma, I will always be the healthy one. I remember what Johnny said. I've spent a lot of my life fighting my way out of the darkness of my childhood. But I finally understand that it's impossible to expect love or compassion from someone living in hell. Johnny has no animosity for mom or dad. Why do I still blame them for their cruelty and abandonment? I don't know the answer to that question. Perhaps I should try harder to forgive. People who are religious might cheer. Shout it out, sister, and welcome God into your heart. I remove my sandals roll up my jeans, and reach into a small day pack. First, I pull out a blue velvet string bag about the size of a child's fist, then a bouquet of eight ranunculus, all orange except for one red flower. The content of the tiny bag is what remains from my mother's cremation. Looking out over the bay, I whisper to my parents, See where I live? Isn't it beautiful? Walking across the gritty sand, I am soon calf-deep in the cold, swirling water. I open the bag and sprinkle a small bit of ash onto the restless current. I release the bouquet. The ashes and the flower flowers are, are pulled out with the receding wave. The blossoms bob on the surface and are then submerged. Some reappear. With each retreating wave, another flower disappears. Now there are two orange blooms and the red one. I watch until all of the flowers have been taken out to sea. The papery red ranunculus is the last to disappear. I press the velvet bag to my heart close my eyes, and listen to the surging water. 
Will I ever be able to make the simple but profound decision to forgive my parents? That sounds like hubris, and maybe it is. Still, I murmur, I'll try. I promise I'll try. Thank you so much for your presence, for sharing your wisdom and doing what you do. Thank you, Valeria, from the bottom of my heart for the opportunity to speak with you about these profoundly important issues. I am sincerely grateful. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Susan Keller and her work, please visit susankeller.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.